Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Sporting Director of Salford City, Chris Casper. Chris, welcome to the show. Evening, Connor. Hope all is well in sunny Manchester. But um, Chris, as we always begin on this show, um, we begin by asking a guest, what was your earliest football memory? Uh, well, I was, uh, I, was, I was in a football family. My dad was a footballer at Burnley in the 60s and 70s and then <clears throat> went on to, to to manage the club and coach the club. Um, so one of my first recollections of football was early 80s, um, going when I was five or six, four, five, six years old, going on Burnley, um, watching watching Burnley, watching some really good players as well, you know, like Trevor Stephen and Billy Hamilton, Martin Dobson and people like that. Um, and the one they Won the uh, uh, third division in uh, 81, 82 with some really good players. Um, so that was really my first recollection of, you know, going to a football match and, you know, experiencing the, um, the professional game, really. And obviously having football at such close quarters growing up as a child, Chris, and was to do you in good stead, um, joining the Man United Academy and being part of that class of 92 with the likes of David Beckham, Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs, so on and so forth. I mean, did you realise at the time that you guys were on some sort of a special journey, that it was some sort of special cohort? No, not at the time. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were uh, kind of not so much thrown together, but there was a lot in the group, a lot in the cohort, and some really obviously some good players, but, you know, no, nothing was expected really of that group that went, you know, that they did go on to achieve what they achieved. Um, probably the only one was Ryan. Um, when Ryan was 13, 14, I played with, sorry, I played against Ryan for Salford boys when I played for Burnley boys. Uh, and Ryan, Ryan was a, an exceptional talent even then. So, you know, there was, there was probably only him, uh, but the rest of us just, you know, we were, like I say, coming from around the Northwest, obviously myself from Burnley and the lads from Manchester, you know, Nicky and, and Scolsey and Gary and that, and then David obviously from London, Sav from um, from from Wales, Keith from Northern Ireland, um, you know. So we were we were from all over the place, and you know we we were we were just a group of young lads who left school and were starting starting on a journey and uh, hopefully to to fulfil our ambition. But like I say that was um, you know there was no great expectation in that first like I say the first six months. Once we got past Christmas and we got, you know, into the second part of the of the season and, you know, towards the the, the latter stages of the Youth Cup, then you kind of knew that we'd got some, you know, some good players and, you know, maybe have a, a special a special thing starting to develop, you know. And then obviously, if you're looking at the current day, I mean, where you sit now, you're sporting director of Salford City. Um, I know last year you completed the Masters in Sports Directorship from the University of Salford. And you obviously seem like a guy who's heavy on the introspection piece. Like, having taken that time outside of the game, Chris, to kind of reflect upon your career to date, and specifically that time and that period, steeped in high-performance principles, I mean, what were the key indicators that indicated to you at that time that made that environment world-class? I think the standards set by the manager, first and foremost, I think that was, um, you know, you look back and, Everything came through the manager, Sir Alex. Um, you know, the, the the discipline he instilled in us. And it wasn't a, a frightening discipline. It was just a, an expectation of a certain 
level of control and discipline and standards and work rate and you know those kind of you know values I suppose that he showed in absolute abundance and more than anybody um you know his work ethic his attention to detail the way he got to know people um you know the way he built relationships was really really um it was admirable really the way that he did it and got to know people he got to know you he got to know your parents he got to know your background he got to know everything about you which made you feel special um you know so i think that was that would be the one thing developing that culture that sir alex helped develop and around that was the people that he put in place so you know one of the the main reasons obviously the main reason for signing for manchester united was it's the biggest club in the world but when you've got the likes of Nobby Styles as your B team coach and Brian Kidd as your coach and Eric Harrison and people like that who were steeped in the club and the history of the club, um, you know that was it, it was just a, a place that was just you know it, it just exuded excellence. Um, you know, I and mean, people talk about an elite environment and they might say an elite environment's got. I don't know, 15 decile pitches and 4G pitches and offices and facilities. It's not. It's the people that are in it that make it. That's the be all and end all of it. That's, you know, that's the one thing that I would take more than anything from my experience at United. But there's nothing fanciful about that. And that sort of stuff doesn't sell newspapers. It doesn't have the razzmatazz. You know, we're in a world nowadays, Chris, where it's all about marginal gains and we trip over ourselves. But getting back to those basic fundamentals, I think there's a case to be heard regarding that. And then making your debut amongst that generation is absolutely an outstanding achievement. But for you yourself at that time, you know, in the midst of all of that competition, for you, was it a sense of relief more than being ecstatic? Um, no, not really. I think, you know, like you say, we, we were, and this again was a, a, a real great part of the club where, you left school in the in the June. Uh, went away for a couple of weeks with my uh, with my with my family. Came back, um, you know, when we started started in at the cliff and in full time training. Um, and you were obviously you were a scholar, you were an apprentice, but you were in a man's world. And really, you were a professional because you were working professional hours. You expected to behave like a professional, so really, you were a professional. So, you know, and. and you know, academies these days, and you know, probably rightly so in certain in a certain way, that you know they have um, they have inductions. Some of them having weak inductions and long inductions, and you know they get the lads in and, set, and settled and comfortable and all that, which is massively important. The welfare and safeguarding of kids is absolutely massive. Um, but for us, we were just kind of thrown into into the situation where you know the manager addressed us, told us what was expected of us, the way that he wanted us to behave. Um, you know, we knew about the history of the club and then we went out training. Um, you know, and the first couple of days, we all trained together. The first team, the reserves and the academy, the youth team lads, all trained together. Um, so it, it just went from there, really. And then, you know, I made my debut in the reserves when I was 16. Uh, obviously played in the Youth Cup final. And so every game was a big game as far as playing for Manchester United is concerned because everybody wants to beat you. Um, you know, and we used to treat that as a, a mark of respect and actually uh, a compliment 
that people would want to do that to you. So every game was was a big game. So when I made my debut, I, I made a couple of appearances in the um, in the preseason games at Rangers and uh, Wolves, and then in preseason uh, friendlies over in Ireland. And then I made my debut at Old uh, Trafford against Port Vale, and it was kind of like, yeah, it's it's a big game, but it was the next stage of your career. Really, it was you know it wasn't a relief or it wasn't over exciting. It was exciting obviously don't get me wrong to make your debut but you know I'd been captain of England and we played in the European Championships the year before and won that like I say we'd won the Youth Cup so it was not what you expected but it was kind of like the norm really that most games that you're playing in were big games anyway so to play against Port Vale at Old Trafford which obviously a lot of their fans as well it's a big night for them um, but it was kind of like what we did it was you know it was no you know no frills and spills about it you got on with it and that was your job really and then I take you back to that famous quote by Alan Hansen back in 92 can't win <laughs> can't win any league titles with kids but I'd argue obviously not having been around at the time or anything now Chris but um, I'd argue that those guys back then they weren't kids at all so you know this better than me. Yeah. They were they were men. They were already adults by the time yeah. they got to the first team. Yeah, and like I say, that's that came out from like I say, the first day of when we walked in through the door when we were 16, that we were treated like men. And you know, we were expected to behave like men. So for you know, Alan Hansen, who was a fantastic player, is you know, even as a Liverpool player when I was growing up, he was a um, you know, someone that I really admired. He was a brilliant player. Um, and for someone like you know him to come out and say something like that, he obviously believed in it. But like I say, he didn't probably know the background of the lads who were in there, and didn't know them as well as everybody else. And obviously, going to to win the the, the league and cup double that year kind of um, you know kind of shows that and makes an example of that. In amidst all of this, I mean, unfortunately, Chris, your career came to an end at the age of 24 through a horrific injury. But I suppose at the time, what the guys had built up within yourself, the likes of Alex Ferguson, the likes of Eric Harrison, creating young men full of resilience would enable you to make that transition during the game through a playing background into coaching. I mean, how important was it to have those mentor figures around and a strong support network to make that transition back then? Yeah, again, going back to, you know, the values that were instilled in you and, you know, there was no, if 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 you were left out or, you know, something wasn't quite right, there was no, um, you know, pussyfooting around with you. It was kind of like, well, this is the decision. This is, there was a, a, a degree of empathy, don't get me wrong, and the way you were treated was, was fantastic. But it's kind of like, well, that's life and, you know, life's not always fair and you kind of, you know, you kind of work that out for yourself that, you know, you leave United when I was 21, 20, uh, 22, 23, sorry, and, you know, I moved to Reading, which was a good move for me at the time. But, you know, uh, an injury like I got when I was 24. Um, but you've got to you've got to count on that kind of experience that you've had with the manager and Eric and Nobby and, and Kiddo and, you know, the tough times that, you know, the, the, that you had um, you know, and the challenges that you were that, that you were faced with, um, you know, it kind of put you in good stead, really, for or, and put me in good stead to, to deal with a, a situation that, 
you know, you're never prepared for really uh, having to make the decision, you know, getting injured when I was 24 and making the decision when I was 26 to retire because, you know, I, my, my plan was to play until I was 36, 37, you know, build my coaching badges up, build my experience up and, you know, forge a career from there. But unfortunately, life's not always fair, like I say, and you've got to, you've got to play the hand that you dealt at times. But I definitely think that, you know, the, the culture that we were brought up in, um, you know, and I, I don't just mean this from myself and my own personal experience, but I look at other lads who, you know, not just went on to have successful careers at United, but other lads that went on to have successful careers at other clubs, you know, Robbie Savage, you could say, uh, had a great career, uh, made the most of what he'd got, uh, Keith Gillespie, but then other lads who got other careers in other businesses and, you know, other 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 parts of the um other parts of the world and things like that and have made a success of the lives it's you know those are the success stories as well not just the lads that played five six seven hundred games for the first team you know the lads that have gone on to have successful careers in their chosen sport or uh, get you know a club or sport or business or you know whatever they've done um there's no question that what we were given at United as an experience and the culture that we brought up in helped develop those personalities and those character traits, 100%. Uh, you're totally right. I mean, success is individual to a person and it's certainly non-linear. But getting back to your earlier point, do you believe, I suppose nowadays, if we look at modern football, that support networks are best equipped to enable players to make that transition? Because, you know, that been wearing that Man United tracksuit for most kids nowadays since they're six or seven up until getting released at 18, 19. There's a huge identity piece around that, Chris. There is. Um, and it's one thing that one thing that worries me, really. And I've just had, it's funny, about five minutes ago, I've just had a message from a lad who we released from uh, the academy uh, at Salford last year. Um, it was a difficult decision. Um, he asked to come back and do some training and any, any player that, you know, that has been at the club, uh, no matter how old they are, they're always willing, they're, uh, sorry, they're always, um, you know, they're, they're, they're always welcome to come back. There's absolutely no question about that. So we helped the lad come back, uh, got him, helped get him some trials, but he was training regularly with the B team. He was, he was fit. Um, and I've just had a lovely message off him to say that he's got a scholarship in Florida, which Brilliant. for me is a lovely message. Thank you for his support and helping him to get fit. And I think probably giving him a little bit of identity back, really, because it was a difficult decision bound to do. So to give him that kind of place where he feels safe and welcome to, you know, take a bit of time and see what he wants to do, that for me is as big a success as a lad going to play in the first team because we've helped a lad on his journey uh, and I'm absolutely made up that he's, that he's got the opportunity to go and um, have an exciting life somewhere. And like I say, I think you know, I'd like to think that we've played a little part in that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what, that's what the game's about. It's not just, like I say, the, the, the obvious, you know, people say define success. It's very difficult actually to define success because like you've said, everybody's success is in, you know, it's individual to each person. Success for some people might just be, to go and enjoy the life somewhere and, you know, live till the 85 or whatever. Some people, it might be to be a multimillionaire and have, you know, um, 
houses and cars and whatever and both are exactly the same as far as i'm concerned whatever makes you happy that's that's success but so long as you define it yourself and like i say for me personally that what i got the message you know like i said just a bit ago was was fantastic for me as far as i'm concerned seeing recent weeks what crystal palace have done launching their aftercare program you'd hope that other Premier League clubs and even in the ninety and even in the seventy-two clubs below will follow suit. Um, I know you're someone as well that's big on introspection and you're big on the reflective piece because you're all, you're not afraid to make a transition, is what I've noticed researching for this podcast. I mean, at Bury, you were the youngest coach in football league at one point, at thirty years of age. You spent three years in first team management. However, after Bury, I noticed you didn't go back well taking at least a manager's role. I mean, what were the main factors for that, Chris? Sometimes opportunity, Connor. Um, um, you know, and others were. I got um, I got an opportunity to go and work for the Premier League um, with a guy that I worked with initially when I just finished playing. A guy called Jed Roddy. Uh, Jed was the uh, head of sport at Bath University, and I was living close to Bath, and um, I joined them for 18 months as a coach so started my coaching journey there um, and really enjoyed the coaching and like I said once I left Bury um, just under two years later I'd done a, a youth youth team coach's job at um, uh, Bradford for a year uh, was assistant manager at Grimsby and then when this opportunity came to join the Premier League and de- uh, develop the East Ripple P as it is uh, that's just um, it's just had, I think it's been uh, 10 years since uh, since it's been delivered. Um, but to work in the Premier League was, for me, another part of my development and something that gave me a little bit of stability as well because, you know, having been a, been a player and having to make a really tough decision, obviously leaving Bury when I did um, was, was tough really because I thought we'd had, you know, quite a bit of success, especially developing young players. And been in the been in the uh, FA Cup that they'd not been in for seven years, and we ticked, a, you know, we ticked off a lot of things that had not been done for a long time at Bury. Um, so to have that, you know, chance to be able to mould a, 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 a more stable career, I suppose, at the Premier League was something that was really, really, um, uh, you know, enticing for me, really, and. It was exciting as well because, like I said, things were new and the academy system was 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 in need of a real reboot, and um, it got that with the EPPP. And at times it was difficult because people aren't always willing to change and don't want to change. Um, but the amount of young homegrown players that were coming through in those st- at that stage after you know the changes in the academy system, uh, it, it, like I say, it needed to be done. And to help deliver that and change that system was at times challenging, um, but at times really exciting and very rewarding at the end of it. Then you reflect back upon your whole career, Chris, being a first-team player, being a first-team coach, you've worked in youth development with the EPPP. You know, it's that broad, dynamic, fluid skill set that earmarked you perfectly for the role of sporting director, the role which you've uptucked now at Salford City since 2017. I'd have to say we probably know a small bit more about it now in 2022, but how exactly would you define your role? I think, that, well, the role is to oversee all the football aspects of the club. Um, so the first team, the B team, academy, 
the ladies team, uh, the performance services that are in the club, so sports science, medical, uh, and the recruitment of, of staff. Um, that's that's what your, your, your role is on a day-to-day basis. You're dealing with the owners and helping or trying to help deliver um, the vision that they've created and that they want to achieve. Um, and obviously within that as well, there's a, a business side of it and a financial side of it. So um, you're there as a support mechanism for the, for the staff that are there, the manager in particular, um, and to take a lot of the workload away from him. So if Sir, you know, when Sir Alex was a manager, he would deal with everything, you know, recruitment, uh, academy, reserves, everything. Uh, but now I think the sporting director's role is to take as much um, of the unwanted stuff away from the manager and the head coach for him to focus solely on what he's actually there to do and and, and benefit the club and use his skill set to the most, um, you know, to its, to its, to its greatest advantage. Uh, so that's what I see the sporting director's role. That's what I've done for the last five years. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's how people work. I would imagine there is a there is a a job description for it, and but I would imagine from sporting director to sporting director, everyone would write their own in a different kind of a way, really. Um, you know, and how they would go about their weekly, you know, the the, the daily routine on a on a weekly basis as well. But I, I'm absolutely convinced that if you don't have and don't build relationships and build trust and have good communication, then it's very very difficult, and that's a big part of the job. There's absolutely no question about that. You've got to have those relationships where people trust you, they can come to you. And I don't just mean being a problem solver for them. You know, people just come to you with problems and expect them to be solved. You know, I expect staff, if they have got a problem, to come to me, but also come with a suggestion of a solution as well. Uh, And then we can work together on it and how we're going to, um, you know, solve the problem. Um, So it's it's a very fluid um, role. It's an exciting role. You can shape it in as, as, as you know in as many ways as you want. Really, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, they're, they're just thinking of it as a as a recruitment role and head of recruitment and and whatever. But that's what your head scout's there for. Um, you're there to make sure all the other parts and all the other footballing departments of the club are supported and functionally as well as possible. Would imagine someone in that role such as yourself has to filter out a whole lot of signal from the noise. And as you referenced earlier on, you have to become a master in delegation. So I'm curious as to how you can marry up the short term with the long term. Is it a fluid, is it an ongoing, is it an ongoing communication process or is it a, is it in terms of we meet at the start of the season, this is the road, this is the journey execute. Yeah, no, it's, um, the, the, the short-term, medium-term, long-term goals and, you know, the, sh- the short-term, obviously, uh, uh, stuff that you deal with on a day-to-day basis and, you know, you speak to staff on a regular basis, um, you know, and yeah, you, you, you do have to have, one thing you do have to have as a sporting director is a thick skin. You know, if you come into this, come into a role like this and expect it to be plain, simple, set, you know, plain and simple and an easy an easy role to do it's a great role to do and it's a fantastic role it, it really is but there are issues that you've got to deal with and you've got to 
you know, sometimes the manager might be frustrated and might need something and you want to help him and support him. The owners might be a little bit frustrated and they might need something or whatever. Um, and you're there, like I say, probably in between everything. So to, to take that and absorb uh, that that communication at times and sometimes that frustration because that's what football's about and that's what football's like. That It's a very emotional game. And I think one of the other things as well, the big things for being a sporting director is you have to be able to turn off that emotion. If you get too emotional and react to things too quickly, then, you know, on the other side of it, if you don't react to things and you don't make decisions, then you're not doing your job right. So it's about timing. It's about, you know, understanding when things need to be done, how they need to be done. But like I say, I think being being calm when sometimes it's not always as calm when things are flying around you, but you have to exude that calmness and that kind of authority and look like it's at least that you're in control, whereas sometimes you might not feel it, but you have to show that to people and you have to have that unemotional aspect to it that you go, well, you know, we like I say, stay calm um, and and deal with things in a in a right and and calm way, I suppose. And when you're the guy who's in charge holding the keys to the safe, let's say, I mean, who's your support network? I mean, where do you turn to if things aren't going wrong or sour, but if things are a bit off, have you any hobbies or pastimes to turn off to dial from football, Chris? Yeah, um, my family are massive to me. Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm just sat at my son's. Uh, he's actually uh, he's in the under 18s at Burnley. He's a massive Burnley fan. Uh, he's been at the academy for five years as a goalkeeper. I'm not too sure where that's come from because obviously my dad was a striker and I was a, a defender and a midfielder. So he's a goalkeeper. Uh, probably his size helps that he's six foot three. Um, but he's living the dream. Like I say, he's a massive Burnley fan due to obviously my dad playing for the club in the 60s and 70s. And um, you know, I, I love watching. I love watching Charlie play. Uh, I love spending time with my family, with my daughter Grace and my wife Karen. Um, and I also enjoy doing the um, doing the masters course. It gave me an opportunity to come away from things a little bit and do some self reflection and self learning, formally and informally, and to meet some some really wonderful people on the course. And I think that was the big part of the learning and big thing that I took was the networking and the people that I met, um, you know, in, in that two years. The second year was disappointing because there wasn't a lot of face-to-face meeting with obviously the COVID restrictions. But, um, you know, going into the into the classroom and just having a coffee with people and a sit down and a chat and getting to know people from different sports and different businesses and backgrounds was brilliant for me. So... I think learning is really important. I think education, formal education, informal education is really important and going to go and improve yourself, but also as well coming right away from it and spending time with your family. And I like to exercise and try and keep as healthy as possible as well. So you just getting that work-life balance really. And sometimes look, you've got to be prepared to work seven days a week. You know, that's, you know, that's football. That's the industry. You will get your time, your downtime, and you take it when when it's available. But you know you've got to you've got to be, you've got to expect to work seven days a week in this in this industry. And if you if if you're not prepared to do that, you're in the wrong you're in the wrong sport. And I suppose with the recent changes in terms of recruitment and transfers, you have been working overtime recently, just post January transfer window. 
But we've obviously seen in the past 12 months changes to GP permit rules. I mean, do you see, I mean, obviously you guys have been fair, whether it's unfairly or fairly tarnished with the brash of being big spenders in the lower leagues. Do you see many more teams in the lower leagues aiming to become much more self-sustainable relying on the academy process? Because what I'm starting to notice with the impact of these rules, Chris, it's having the un unintended consequence of many Premier League clubs coming down and hoovering up talent from the lower leagues, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think in the next five to ten years, you'll see a, a real emphasis on, um, well, hopefully two things. One is that clubs develop their own. Um, you know, they continue to develop their own young players through their academies, whether that's at Premier League level or, you know, League Two and whatever. Um, so hopefully that's going to be the case. And because of the restriction of, you know, foreign players coming into the country. Um, and two for the players that um, wouldn't normally get the opportunity. So, in the, again, in the lower leagues, once you get into the first team and what have you, you know, the younger players especially, that, you know, the, the, the clubs, the bigger clubs, the Premier League clubs, are going to have to look down into the lower leagues. Because, you know, that's where the recruitment's going to have to take place because there's only so many... Um, foreigners that can be brought into the club and into the country because of the rules and regulations. So, um, for me, I think for the game and in particular the young players, like I say, and the the uh, the players from the from the law leagues, I think it's a great opportunity for them. And I think hopefully that they will get more opportunities in the, like I say, in the next five to ten years, and we'll notice a big difference of because there is some really good young players and, and players in the in the lower leagues. There's no question about that. And um, but with that. You know, the clubs need to be uh, well compensated. Um, and like you say, that, 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 that does help them then become more, self, uh, more sustainable. And ultimately where you want to get to be is, is to be self-sustainable, where, you know, you, you might have to sell a player every year, but you've got a, a steady um, flow of players coming through your academy and you've got good young players in your first team. And, you know, if you do have to sell a player, you know, but, there's another one coming through as well that can replace that player. So that's, you know, I'm sure where a lot of clubs want to get to. And to be fair, it's where we want to get to at Salford. We want to develop our own young players, um, you know, and, and they give you that that identity. And going back to the United thing, that's what you do. That's 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 what Sir Alex did. And, you know, he give young players an opportunity. And the one thing young players don't do is let you down with their ethic and, you know, their... Um, you know, they'll run through brick walls for you. I, I did the same at Bury with the likes, you know, Nicky Adams and Mark Pugh and David Buchanan and Casper Schmeichel. And, you know, these were lads that, you know, they just genuinely love the game and they give you everything they've got. They'll make mistakes, young players, but you kind of, you know, the, the trade-off of that is, like I say, what they give to the players, the vibrancy and the enthusiasm. Is, um, is is something that can't be replicated. Um, so yeah, hopefully, like I say, in the um, in in the years to come, uh, more more homegrown players, more young players, and players from the lower leagues will get uh, get get opportunities to play higher up the uh, up the up the football pyramid. As we elaborated upon earlier on, I mean, it's a continuous game. Success is subjective. Not every only one team can win the Premier League. Only one team can win the World Cup every four years. Only one player can win the Ballon d'Or. 
And if you look at what Casper Schmeichel has achieved in his career, look at players like Nicky Adams, David Buchanan, Mark Pugh, what a career that man went on to have playing in all divisions in England. And it's it's tough to attribute success down to one thing. But the best thing you can say as a coach is that you facilitated that. You left it more organic. And maybe this could be the next reincarnation or the next follow-up through from EPPP. But for me, it's an interesting dilemma, which you guys have at Salford City. It's not the worst one. It's quite enviable in terms of how do you distinguish Manchester United from or Salford City? How do you distinguish Salford City from Manchester United with so many of the Class 92 guys involved? It's a funny one. Yeah, what you take from, like I say, what we'd like to take from Manchester United was the way that the values and principles that we were brought up on. Um, you know, standards, behaviours, but also as well, that risk in a game. You know, if you look at, you know, they always talk about Fergie time and, you know, he was, he, he got, you know, he was lucky and got goals at the end of the in the game in injury time. It wasn't luck. It wasn't luck. That was, he got good players, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't luck. That was the fact that he was willing to take a risk and do something that was a bit crazy. You know, play, he could end up with, you might end up with four strikers on the pitch, two two attacking midfielders if you were chasing a game, you know, and a and a, stri- and, a and a defender or two two fullbacks bombing forward. But that's what that's what Manchester United were about, you know, being on the front foot. Um, I could say taking risks and being bold, um, and those are the things that you'd like to take from Manchester United into Salford, and that's the stuff that we're trying to do, build that culture and create that philosophy and playing philosophy that. You know, if, if you lose a game trying to win the game, it's acceptable. You know, you're not going to win every game. But if you go into the game with that winning mindset and, the, and and wanting to win and doing everything you can and taking a risk and, you know, being bold, like I say, and if it doesn't quite work, then it's not a problem. Um, you know, and like I say, Manchester United didn't win every game. But the way that they went about it and the players that they got in the team and the, that were in the team that excited you, I think you've got a duty of care. Uh, you know, you've got a duty of, um, you know, to, to, to the people that pay, that work hard every, every day, you know, working class people and they go and work in, you know, whatever they do and their enjoyment on a Saturday is to come and shout and scream and enjoy a game of football and, I think you've got a duty of care to 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 um, to provide that, and again, that was instilled in you at Manchester United that you know these people that come and watch you, that, you know they've worked hard all week. You've got to give them something to, to shout and and be enthusiastic and enjoy. Um, you know, and again, going right back to the days of the Busby Babes, you know that was instilled in us how they went about it. There were a, a bunch of young lads, um, you know, that played for a manager that gave them that opportunity. And we were the same, at, you know, in, in our area with, with Sir Alex and hopefully we can create that and we're trying to create things, something like that at Salford um, where, you know, young players and young people are given an opportunity. But like I say, ultimately as well, you've got that... Um, that duty to be able to deliver something that the fans want to go and watch and, and be uh, be entertained by. Seeing how those lessons, Chris, have been applied now into the present, 
let's talk about the future. Obviously, a huge part of your role is future planning, sense-making, and being a super forecaster. How do you exactly see the role of a sporting director evolving over the next five to ten years? Well, at Salford or in, in general? In, in general, in general. I think it would definitely become more and more prevalent. Um, I think every club in the Premier League has a sporting director. I think I think Man United have uh, recently joined the uh, the 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 list um, with with Darren Fletcher and, and John Murtagh being involved as well in in that capacity. Time. It was in Fergie time, yeah, in that's right, time. yeah, yeah. They finally, <laughs> finally got there, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it'll become, like I say, more and more important that I think. With, um, you know, the old, with all respect, the older, more traditional managers, as you'd say, they would still see themselves as overseeing everything. Um, I think with the game going as it is, I think, you know, academies are getting bigger. Um, you know, there's more, more and more money in the game. Um, staff are getting bigger. There's always somebody leading the way in some some department and then other departments have to catch up with that. So the game's evolving all the time. And I think it become more and more important. It becomes more and more important now that especially with young coaches getting more and more opportunities to be a manager and a head coach of a club, they will have got they'll have been brought up in that kind of environment. You could say that you know, like I say, you look at the size of the academies these days, category one academy, we'll probably have maybe 70 or 80 staff that the academy managers overseeing. Now, that's kind of what you maybe class as a, um, you know, um, an academy sporting director, really, because like I say, you're overseeing so many departments and so many people. That's a really tough coordination of people and, and, and leading um, you know, so many people, but I think the younger coaches will have seen that or will see that, and I think they'll be used to that. So I think as time goes on, the younger coaches that do get an opportunity to to manage first team uh, clubs, um, I think they will they will want and they'll understand the role of the sporting director more and more. And I think we'll see more and more sporting directors in the in the country. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Very popular in in Europe and throughout South America. America now are joining joining that um, that, that that side of things as well. So, like I say, I think more and more you'll see more and more sporting directors in this country. It's been an absolutely fascinating break, then, Chris, of your career, how you've made that transition, and of your current role day to day. But I suppose as we begin to close. What would be the piece of advice you would have for those people who wished embarking upon a similar journey such as yourself? I think education is, is the real thing that I would say. And I don't just mean formal education. Um, you know, I, I go out and learn about the different aspects of the job, um, you know, the different um, departments within the club that you have to understand. And I think, again, being clear on the role of the sporting director is you're not there to tell people what to do. You're not, you're not an expert in sports science. You're not an expert physio. You're not an expert video analyst. Your job is to actually recruit the best people possible for that role. 
I think you have to have a certain understanding of the role. So I think you've got to be able to hold a conversation with the heads of those departments. So I think, you know, if I was looking to start my career over again, that's, you know, and, and advise people who want to get into that side of things uh, and, and that role, sorry, um, is understanding the different departments and also understanding different sporting directors and going watching and studying and speaking to other sporting directors as well, the way that they work and how they do things. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to to speak with Victor Orta at Leeds and Michael Edwards at Liverpool, uh, Dan Ashworth, who's who was at the FA at the time, who's just left to go to left Brighton to go to Newcastle. Um, and I think you know, taking that time to find out about the how people do the role differently um, and understanding the role, I think, is really really important. So I think education's the biggest thing that I would say. Fantastic, Chris. It's been absolutely brilliant having you on. Certainly, one I'll be listening back to twice again. And um, for anyone that wishes to keep up to date with yourself, I'll attach your LinkedIn in the show notes below. But Chris, pleasure having you on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Connor.